Welcome to Circle Sanctuary Network Podcast, brought to you by Circle Sanctuary, one of the oldest nature spirituality churches in the United States, connecting people of nature-centered paths around the world. Join us through the week for a variety of shows discussing various topics, celebrating the divine in all of its forms, through nature worship, rituals, education, and building bridges of community. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Blue Marble Podcast and another special recording of Circle Sanctuary's Green Faith Circle. I'm your host, Rev Charbert. Thank you for tuning in. Um, Here in this circle, we share personal stories about, oh gosh, climate impacts, climate solutions, climate justice, sustainable, regenerative living, various eco-activist adventures, all informed by our nature-based spirituality. And our purpose is to educate and to motivate, hoping to manifest some good energy for each other and for our planet. Welcome to our participants who are in the circle uh, around the screen tonight and to our featured presenter, Reverend Chip Brown. I want to invite um, each of you around the screen to to just give a little intro about yourself. Um, Nicholas, can I ask you to start? All right. Hey, everybody. Um, I'm Nicholas. I'm down in Western Kentucky. Um, We're going from warm to cold to warm to cold. Um, I've been with Circle since the late 70s, so that's uh, quite a long time. Um, Sustainable living um, is something I've always been interested in, and I have a lot of friends who are engaged. Um, Chip is, you know, one of the um, the big builders, so to speak. Um, I have my own little sustainable yard and gardens and stuff like that. And, um, my life is, uh, online, encouraging, learning, um, and doing what I can to support, uh, 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 climate, uh, climate crisis issues and, and, um, sustainable living. So that's me. Great. Thanks, Nicholas. Uh, Reverend Judith. Hello, um, I'm Reverend Judith. I'm in Chicago, Illinois, and um, I've been a minister with Circle Sanctuary for over two years now um, and a member of Green Faith, Circle's Green Faith um, uh, organization for since its founding over two years ago as well. Um, and I serve the Circle community in many different ways, um, but most notably um, giving service, nature spirituality services to the recruits at Naval Station Great Lakes. And one of the things I often talk to them about is how important it is that we look out for the health and welfare of everyone on this planet because we all need fresh air, we all need fresh water, clean water. And um, as uh, they might be going into war as military often does, um, I think it's just important that they um, remember that war also is damaging to the climate. So um, that's part of my message and that's why I'm here. Thank you. Thanks, Judith. Colleen. Hi, um, I am uh, located in the far southwestern suburbs of Chicago. I have been um, going to Circle Sanctuary and a part of its community for almost 30 years now. And my main contribution or connection to the community is artistically. 
Um, in my life work, I work with seniors, specifically those uh, with Alzheimer's, but in my artwork and with my work with seniors, uh, much of it connects spirit and nature. So that is that connection is what informs my artwork. I do the logos for PSG and have been doing that for a very long time. And, um, and, and everything about the health of the climate and the planet and nature connects spirituality. And it is the underlying basis of all things. And I grew up on a farm very far out in the country. So it's just part of how I do things. Lovely, lovely. Chip, I'm going to I'm going to hold off on you for a second cuz we're going to we're going to say more about you if that's okay. Um I'm a behavioral health professional and a spiritual leader, former broadcast journalist and a veteran and um I have been involved with climate activism now for a lot of years and to me it is just an overarching issue under that is so intersectional. Everything I care about sort of falls under that umbrella and I'm really excited tonight to hear about um, uh, Chip's project that he's been working on with his spouse. So um, Chip, I'm going to brag on you for you. He is a retired attorney, historian, archaeologist, uh, historic preservationist, and now an off-grid sustainable farmstead farmer. And throughout his career, uh, Chip worked for the state of Wisconsin and with the Wisconsin resident tribes and nations to protect and preserve cultural resources, sacred sites, and human burial sites. And he and his spouse are building the first state-permitted, tire bale constructive, active and passive, solar, sustainable, off-grid home in their state. And they're, they've received, um, they've obtained approval for the first state-permitted vermiculture septic system for their home too. And they live on their land, they grow their own food, they raise their chickens, collecting, hauling water for all personal and agricultural use. And they hope that their efforts may be a model for folks to live a carbon neutral lifestyle while supporting themselves and assisting their families, communities, tribes, much needed in this time of climate change. So, Chip, we're so excited to have you here with us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And, sure. uh, it's, um, it's it's a pleasure to be here. And thank uh, thank you all in the uh, the circle this evening and, and folks who are listening as uh um, Shar explained my background um, accurately. That's that's who I've been and what I'm doing. Um, I've been affiliated with uh, uh, Circle. Found Circle as my spiritual home 40 years ago, a little more than that actually, um, and um, have been uh, assisting with uh, legal issues, legal advice, um, uh, coordinating uh, many activities uh, on behalf of Circle Sanctuary and. Uh, Especially for uh, for PSG, Pagan Spirit Gathering, and um, for many, many, many years now, um, uh, well, thirty five years I think now at uh, PSG, working special issues coordinator and what have you. But um, to our topic, and I think that we'll talk about the spiritual elements of of my background and and what um, mm-hmm. my wife Kimi and I are are doing out here in. Mm-hmm. Uh, in New Mexico uh, shortly as a part of this conversation. Um, yeah. But, um, for right now, we are in uh, northwestern uh, New Mexico. We are in uh, the uh, Baca Pruitt chapter of the Navajo Nation. It's part of the checkerboard area of uh, the reservation system here in um, New Mexico. What is the state of New Mexico? We are on private land, um, and we are 
involved with uh, the local community, with people who also share private lands around us. Um, we are completely off-grid. There are no utilities to come into our area. We are several miles away from the closest um, full-time residents out here, and we rely on them, and they rely on us as part of our very small, very local community. Um, sure. uh, I wanted to I wanted to say I'm so glad that you could be here with us tonight because I'm respecting that Zoom isn't always reliable where you are. Oh. So, <laughs> no, it's I, not. And, yeah. and, and as be, you and know, be, yeah. Up, up, up until we started this, I was having difficulty with connectivity. And uh, so we use Starlink. That is the only option we have. Again, there are no uh, no utilities coming through. There's no cable. There's nothing like that. Um, we had used telephones at one point, but uh, that was pretty onerous. Um, the Starlink has been quite amazing for us out here. But that's, uh, yeah. And, uh, well, and to, we talked to, to people. <laughs> you talk to people like this and, and to, sort of, to sort of frame this uh, for our yeah. audience, you know, one of the things that's being talked about a lot today, again, is is this idea of sustainable living and uh, the various issues involved with becoming more sustainable in our lifestyle choices. And I say again, because, you know, when I was growing up back in the day now, my parents were part of the get back to the earth or get back to nature movement. Mm-hmm. In the 60s and 70s. And in those days, that meant buying up a bunch of land, often with some fixer upper buildings on it, living off the land as much as was possible, um, not necessarily off the grid, and sometimes in communities, sometimes as solo dwellers or single families. And today, that notion of living off the grid, living close to the land is reemerging. Now that the climate crisis is real and communities all over the world are considering how to be more resilient. And I think also um, how you know some indigenous communities are getting more airtime on various platforms. So I just wanted to to say briefly for for our audience, if you didn't know the um, and for all of us in Green Faith Circle, we've been hearing about your journey with Brown Pawa now for at least a couple of years, and being able to hear more about this journey is exciting for anyone listening or viewing brown kawa farmstead is as chip was mentioning it's 140 acres on the south and southwest faces of a mesa in northwest new mexico and it is a pinion juniper woodland crisscrossed by usually dry auroros ecosystem and for more information i just want to direct everybody to brownkawa.com the brown kawa farmstead site and as mm-hmm. we speak you can mark that as a favorite and go back and check it out in more detail after the program. So brownkawa.com. So Chip, to kick us off, why why do this? What is the aim or purpose of Brown Kawa Farmstead? Well, for me, there's a lot of background, as you might imagine, on this. But um, Kimi, my wife, and I determined that uh, we were going to do the best we could to retire early. Um, from our respective jobs. I worked for the state. Kimi was a, a teacher in the uh, Madison School District in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, and we were in Wisconsin. And we had both concluded 10 years ago that uh, we were ready for a move. We wanted to uh, relocate from the colder, darker climbs of Wisconsin to somewhere warmer. And we had been, I had been visiting uh, friends and family relatives down here in New Mexico for, for more than 40 years. And um Love the place. And so as our retirement time approached, which was uh, almost five years ago now, um, we were looking for something down here. But a part of that goal was in moving down here, we want to demonstrate and we want to live a life of self-sufficiency. 
we wanted to use uh, materials that were associated with and part of the land. We wanted to work with our land and do what we could to enhance its productivity, to be cautious and careful with water, to do what we could to restore and rejuvenate the landscape. Um, and a lot of those ideas came in <clears throat> after we determined where literally we were going to live because we're in an area where uh, 800 to 1,000 years ago, the climate changed and the Anasazi people, the Pueblo and people who are living here at that time had severe challenges. And uh, we're facing those same challenges today with climate change. And certainly here, uh, we're in a very arid environment. Water is scarce and is uh, a challenging resource for people to manage. Um, there are all kinds of uh, competitive elements out here looking to use the water, looking to take water rights, mineral rights, etc. I mean, it tends to be one of those things here in the state of New Mexico that is precious. There's not a lot of development here in the state. It is the third poorest state in the nation. And um, so we are in competition for resources and for our purposes, we felt we need to preserve the resources. Of course we do. We are looking to put something together that's at least carbon neutral, if not carbon negative. And so that idea, I think, is addressed by what we've done with constructing our house, uh, with how we've constructed our house. We're using um, recycled waste materials, tires. Five, no, seven years ago now, we did research into the kind of structure that we would build in this environment. And we thought, well, it's got to be efficient. It's got to take care of us. We love the philosophy of Michael Reynolds, who put together the earth ships out of Taos, uh, New Mexico, down here. Um, this house that we are building, I think of it as being alive. It is alive. It's a part of us. It's a part of our environment. We're using uh, local adobes and clays. We have gotten tires. This is really the kicker for us in terms of what people can do moving forward. Um, just an aside here, I'll explain this. Tires are an incredible uh, source of problems. They generate disease. They breed mosquitoes and insects and other kinds of uh, ailments that are they're really terrible. And we have a grotesque overabundance of waste tires in this country. I mean, across the planet, our, t our landfill here, um, the through landfill, um, has what I was told, close to a billion tires. They're a massive, massive landfill. Uh, and we went out and, and saw these miles upon miles of tire bales um, just stacked everywhere. They don't know what to do with them. Um, we are aware in, in our research with Michael Reynolds, looking at uh, Earthships, Reynolds used tires in his design. He thought we can recycle tires. And so in the Earthship designs, they incorporate about a incorporate about a thousand tires in the perimeter construction. It's a U-shaped construction. The open front faces south to enhance solar gain, to incorporate your solar panels, etc. We can talk about more of that in, in a minute. But um, the way that they construct their um, their buildings is incredibly labor intensive. Uh, my wife and I are both in our sixties. Um, we're pretty active and pretty strong and, and able and what have you. But the notion of pounding a thousand tires full of sand with sledgehammers and stacking them up in a single row was really daunting and something that we thought we cannot do this. And a huge part of this project was we can do this in our retirement. And that is what we have been doing now for the last three years. It's, these are things that are not out of our purview, not out of our abilities we can do research and learn and how to construct this stuff. And that's what we're doing. Anyway, our tires uh, are formed into bales. 
And these bales are about four feet by five feet by two and a half feet. They're like Lego blocks, essentially. Um, they're used in water retention projects, in uh, erosion control projects. They have been incorporated into these massive earthworks through state and federal government projects for at least 20 years now. So there's a lot of information about these tire bales. And we thought, why shouldn't we build a house out of this? Now, across the country, there may be 15 or 20 other of these houses, residences made of tire bales. And we've been in touch with uh, half of those people. What have their problems been? How have they done this? We've visited with folks and that sort of thing about what, you know, what, what help us out. We have a glitch. What can we do? And they've been through it or they haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can network on that. Um, in any event, the tires that we're using now, we have incorporated 90 tire bales in our house, creating walls that are about six feet thick, um, incredibly dense, massive, thermally efficient. Um, the best minimum guess that we saw with the thermal efficiency of these tires, if they were not covered with anything, was upwards of 40, the, um, the R values of these for, for wall insulation, um, which for just stacking up a bunch of tires is pretty incredible. You just don't get that in the walls of your homes. In fact, most walls are required to be R19 for insulation or R20 for, for insulation purposes. So our walls are also covered with shotcrete. There's a story there. We had not wanted to do that. Um, we wanted to use Adobe. And we realized in talking to others who had done that, that that was an extraordinarily time-consuming or manpower, human power intensive enterprise and would have taken us six to eight months to complete that because the bales themselves are so large. The footprint of the building is um, about 75 by 35 feet from the outside of the walls. The interior space is about a thousand square feet. That's how much area the tires consume. And so you have to cover the entire surface area of those tires with something. So we went with Shotcrete. We found one person who could do that. And they came out to our site from Albuquerque. It was about a two-hour trip each way for them to come out. And they were game. And they did it. And so back to the insulation factor, we're, we're probably looking at insulation now with about six inches of concrete, three inside, three outside. But the top, the bottom is fully embedded, et cetera. Um, we're thinking that we're probably upwards of 60 or 70 R value on the tires. And we have temperature data that we've now collected for a year and a half. And we see that um, the temperature fluctuates from the lowest low in the winter with no insulation in our front wall, which is the only stick built element of our building. Um, The lowest temperature we've seen is about freezing. There is no HVAC in this house. The highest temperature in the summer has gotten to about 80 degrees in the house. On any given day, you can see the fluctuation of about seven degrees from the low at night to the high during the day without any heating source or cooling source. And so it's remarkably efficient as it is now. We still have two doors doors to put on. We have a front wall to fully insulate. Um, We have solar to put on. So we're prepared in the event that we need something. I mean, we've got some heaters and that sort of thing. Um, and we do have some state requirements and uh, I'd like to come back to that at the end as a, a special caveat for folks who are listening to this. Um, but, but I guess the one point that I didn't make yet that I wanted to make, I don't know if I said this or not, we have incorporated, um, what is it? A hundred, 9,000 scrap tires into this construction, which is a huge hit. And so the landfill and others involved in this 
are incredibly excited to see this move ahead because if folks could take these bales, which cost us nothing from the landfill. And in fact, the landfill is close enough that working with them, they saw what we were doing. They were very excited. They literally delivered 80 of the tire bales to our house on their trucks to help us get this thing underway. So they're incredibly excited. And I will tell you, we completed the tire bale wastewater permit requirements two weeks ago to the satisfaction of the state. So we did what we needed to do with these waste tires. And so aside from the rest of this stuff, I think um, that's exciting. Uh, as Char mm-hmm. said, this is the first tire bale constructed house, permitted, formally permitted house in the state of New Mexico. And our goal, our hope is others will be able to follow suit and do this. They don't, people don't need to build a massive uh, thing like we built. It could be a rather small structure. Uh, you could use, you know, 20 tire bales and stack them up and put a Vega roof on there. And you're, you're all set and you've got something that will sustain you. Uh, you put a little greenhouse on the front like an airship does. Um, my gosh, it will. The house will keep you alive. It will feed you. The roof, we have a 3,000 square foot roof which is much larger than the interior. As I said, that's a thousand square feet. The roof is supported by timbers and beams across the front and the tire bell structure across the back and the sides. Uh, and that is water catchment. We have to haul water. We do not have a well. We did not want to put in a well. We thought that the uh, water table is sufficiently tenuous as it is. We don't need to go put in a well right now if we don't have to. We have 3,100 gallons of cisterns behind the house And last year, well, actually two years ago, when we put them in, they filled up in less than two weeks during the monsoon. That's how much water is generated off of your roof, off of this roof. So thinking about it, smaller scale project, still in the monsoon, you could fill up two, three, four, five thousand gallons in no time, even with the drought that we're in here. And the amount of rainfall that we get, uh, you do the calculations, you will see that that is the case. Um, There are... Many, many folks out here in need of opportunity to create reasonable living space, to generate decent food, local food, food that is healthy and suitable and traditional, etc. And I think that this kind of a construction can be translated. When our house is finished, we're looking forward to putting together a very small project on another piece of our property that will just be a very small footprint tire bale house that would be like a small house, but made it of tire bales and hopefully would cost almost nothing. Gathered materials. If people come together as a community, perhaps folks might be able to do something like a cob, adobe uh, facade face on all the tires, maybe a quick stick built front, a couple of doors. You're all set. You face it south. You know, it's kind of like you you wind it up, you turn it on, and away it goes. I, I, I mean, so far from what we can tell, that is what's happening here. So our goal, our dream has been every element of this needs to be of use, translatable, uh, something that is a minor or no footprint on, on the landscape, something that gives back. Um, another element of this that's really important and really significant for us is the vermiculture septic system that we put in. It's a residential worm composting of our septage, all the black water that comes out of the house, the toilets, the kitchen sink, uh, whatever it is that you're putting into your disposal system. 
we discovered that in Australia, in New Zealand, in Portugal, other places around the world, they're using worms. These are earthworms that will digest this waste material and produce an effluent, the water that goes out into your drain field that is virtually pure by comparison to what goes into a drain field out of a traditional anaerobic septic system. So this is an aerobic system. It took us a year to get uh, an experimental variance use permit to put this this system in uh, here at our home. But we did get the permits. It is now built. Uh, We have not put it online yet because we're not living in the house. So as soon as we're running water out of the house and waste, that's when we will get the earthworms. It's a great farm in Texas that produces earthworms. We've already gotten them for some of our composting systems. Um, and we are very excited about that. One of the conditions that we have to um, meet for this is quarterly testing. So we have a testing facility already identified. We have um, a testing uh, apparatus at the base of our uh, worm bin, our worm system, so that we'll be taking the effluent out making sure that everything looks good, quarterly testing. After we've done this for a year or two, I can't remember what our conditions were on that, um, we will be non-experimental and we will have our full, our full use and our full acceptance. As far as we know, this is the first residential vermiculture septic system in the country. So we are very excited about publishing the data, letting people know how efficient, how inexpensive. That's the shocking thing. There's another aside story about the septic system. First of all, my wife, Kimi, did tremendous research. She did all of the research and the applications and fought with the state. And finally, we had success with them in getting this conditional use permit. So Kimi did a huge amount of work doing that. Um, What we um, discovered, I lost my track there. Um, so well while you lost your track i'm just (laughs) i'm just uh, no i mean there's there's so much and your passion about it is understandable it's really remarkable i'm i'm just wondering because i noticed on the on the uh the site it talks about phases one two and three and i'm kind of interested in you know what was phase one two and three what were the biggest uh, accomplishments and hurdles of, of those phases? Maybe if you're willing to talk about that. Yes, yes, I can. Um, when we first got here, um, our thought was we need a place to live. We came out here in a pop-up camper. They gave us about mm, four feet by seven feet of floor space and two beds on either end, literally a, you know, a pop-up tent camper, the little camper that you see. Well, um, this will be our fifth winter living in that pop-up camper. We are still in that camper and it's um you know again it's kept us going so that's pretty amazing we i did modify it i put a bed in there anyway first thing was to build the house but what we decided was no let's focus on the land let's focus on community let's focus on food production we built a very special greenhouse it's called a greenhouse in the snow you can look that up it was developed in nebraska 45 years ago about um the amazing thing about the greenhouse is it's excavated four or five feet down. It's linear. It faces south. The back of the greenhouse is wood construction and fully insulated. The front, oh, probably 70% of the area exposed to the air is Lexan panels. Um, And so it's highly efficient. We have 260 feet of geothermal tubing and a blower that is um, 
uh, powered by uh, photovoltaic. So the blower um, produces 50 degree, 50 to 55 degree temperature year round. So in the winter, when it's cold, it drops below 50 or 45. The blower comes on, pumps air in and sustains the greenhouse. In the summer, um, before we did some other things, we realized that the greenhouse could get to 130 degrees in, in no time at all. So we put um, a sunshade on the, on the greenhouse to block out some of the sun. And then the blower would keep the, uh, the greenhouse cool for the rest of the time. And so it works incredibly well. So we have a 12-month, 24-7 uh, greenhouse uh, that is producing um, citrus, figs, uh, bananas. We have any kind of tree you can imagine, fruit trees that you want to put in your greenhouse, you can. It'll sustain it. We have... Um, numerous tomato plants, cherry tomatoes, which we really like, that um, are now three years old and they are producing fruit constantly. So we're always having fresh cherry tomatoes. We have grown happy tomatoes. Yes. Yes. We've grown <coughs> microgreens, lettuces, uh, potatoes, um, carrots. I mean, you name it, it's all ready to go. But that was phase one. And so for the first year, we got certification to sell our food. We went to the farmer's market telling everyone what we're doing. We got certified to um, give produce to local schools and senior centers. So we were certified by the state to do this. We got chickens. We now have 27 chickens, 24 laying hens and three roosters. Um, we have three different hen houses that we maintain. And all of this through a very small photovoltaic system that is attached to the greenhouse and our camper and that has nothing to do with a much larger system that we'll be installing on the house. Um, in any event, like I said, the first phase, food production. So that was what we focused on. And then we realized that, you know, we could do this for the rest of our lives, just food production. We had outside gardens too. And we thought, no, we, we, we have to live in a house. We, the, the camper's not going to keep us forever. So we really then, I mean, you know, that was the big goal was this sustainable home that could be, you know, the ideas could be shared with people. So the following year, we put in for the permit for the home. We are, Kimi and I are the general contractors on the house. And so we have done virtually everything on the house. We've hired a couple of crews to come in with big machines. The cement company has come in to pour foundations and that sort of stuff. And virtually everyone, except the, uh, uh, Gary, the guy who did the shotcrete from Albuquerque, all the folks have been local. And so we're really excited about that. I mean, we're friends with folks that they live nearby um, from various communities. And so that's pretty tremendous. Um, so the next phase was building the house. We got the permit for the, uh, uh, the tires. We put those in place. Um, we succeeded in getting the permit for the vermiculture system. And that now is fully installed and in place. Um, we're moving forward with um, incorporating more natural elements into the house. And this is all part of the phase two, I guess. Um, that is we're using uh, scoria, pumice rock for 16 inch bag walls that we put on the second. The house is on a slope. It's got a shed roof. And so the tire bales come up on a level plane. And then there's a triangular section of wall that is constructed of 16 inch wide bags that are full of pumice rock and then covered with uh, lime adobe lime plaster. And so that is finished. All those are in place. Very, very efficient. Uh, pumice is incredibly efficient as a construction material. Um, so that was also part of phase two. We got that done. Now the next thing is pouring um, local adobe into our floors, 
local adobe on the interior walls. And we've just started that. As I said, all the exterior work was finished before the freeze two weeks ago. I guess I was speaking to you folks earlier about that. Um, so our goal was to complete the exterior envelope. And we did that before the freeze kicked in. And that was really a significant goal for us. So we achieved that. Now we're moving inside and the days are warm enough here. We're at about 7,200 feet elevation in the Northwest uh, where we are. So it can be cold in the winter, but uh, having come from Wisconsin, it's nothing like that. The daytime usually, even in the worst days, gets to 40 or so. So we can mix our materials outside, bring them into the house. So we've already started to pour a uh, clay floor. We've also gotten uh, about 30% of our mat floor material is saltillo tile, handmade tiles from um, Mexico that are just these incredible um, handmade utilitarian tiles that are just beautiful. And many homes down here use them. They're, they're about three quarters of an inch thick. Um, they retain heat. They're a great um, source of energy retention for our passive solar element in the house. Um, the front of the house has, uh, sorry, I'm digressing a little bit now. The front of the house has seven clear story windows above the shed roof that holds the solar panels. And those roofs were designed with an overhanging eave on the roof so that at the time of about um, the fall equinox, the windows start to become exposed. And through the winter, those windows are fully exposed to sunlight. And the sunlight goes into the house, hits the clay and the mass in there to retain heat in uh, wintertime, I said, yeah. So then at the spring equinox, the, uh, the sunlight has started to move above the house. And so then the windows, the clear stories up at the top are in shade. No more sunlight is going directly into the house and the house is now becoming naturally cool and it's retaining um, the temperature. So it's staying cool because less heat is moving, you know, less sunlight is moving into the house. And so it kind of works like that. And uh, on paper, it looked great. And um, it looks like the performance data with temperature that we've maintained now for a year and a half shows that, that continues to be the case. And so we're very, very excited that the house is performing. And so that's, uh, you know, I don't want to characterize it like that. You know, the house is alive, the house is sustaining us, so, but it's, it's performing the way we had hoped that it would. Yeah, um, no, we're getting a sense of the dynamics of, of that living structure. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, I can imagine, I can imagine some people might be listening to this and going, wow, this is incredible. But, you know, two professionals retired, probably independently wealthy, got some land. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing that. You know, do you have to be rich or privileged no. to, to develop something like this? I mean, when you say rec replicable, is that for no. everybody? I hope so. And um, when our house is finished, um, it's it's kind of like what we had imagined. It, it's a compromise of things. We, you know, you, you always have a dream house thing that you want to retire into and that sort of thing. And so we thought, well, we're building it. Let's build it the way we would like it to be. But when we retired, I will tell you this. All kidding aside, um, we decided that we would take a, a a vow of poverty in a sense. I, I think most folks would not have retired as, as early as we did. Um, but, you know, I think we both ended our careers in a very positive way. I, I was very excited and fortunate and blessed really through my career that um, I, uh, I was able to, to go at a time, I think when, you know, there was, it was a nice opportunity to transition. I, I was excited about what we had accomplished at the state and uh, 
was ready now for for new enterprise and so this seemed to be the thing to do let's let's do what we can now hmm. because hmm. other issues are critical and anyway replicable mm-hmm. yeah so the tire bales as i say those those are free i mean if somebody's got a pickup truck or a flatbed you could haul i did at the beginning of moving those things i could move five of them at a time with my truck and a, and a flatbed and so i could go to the landfill pick them up and bring them out um, then we started stacking them up. You get a forklift, anybody who can handle the forklift, you can rent a forklift and build a structure of 20 or 25 tire bales in a day. That's how long it takes. You stack them up with a forklift and you kind of anchor them together. You use some rebar, um, put them right in the dirt. You cut, you know, you level things out, put it in place. Um, there is, your building, three walls of your building is ready uh, with free or cheap tire bales uh, and uh, the rental of a, of a forklift in a day. I mean, you're not spending lots and lots of money on a crew to build a stick-built house with everything that goes with it. Beyond that, though, I think it can, it perhaps is somewhat labor-intensive because you're going to use your hands, you're going to mix up clay, you're going to go on your site or go to you know, your relatives or, or wherever people have access to a clay base. And again, you know, you're going to, you're going to throw a bunch of clay in your pickup truck. You're going to go home, get some five gallon buckets and a drill bit and a mixer, and you're going to mix up that clay and then you're going to put it on your walls and you're going to, you know, it is, it's doable. And the houses can be small enough that my guess is you could probably build something like that, doing all of the covering and the coating inside of a, couple of months so maybe that sounds long i don't know wow I, you know, I look at it and i think we're we're three years moving on this house you know that's how long it's taken two of us in our 60s to do it um mostly alone but we fired some you know local folks to help and that sort of thing um but uh yeah i believe that you do not have to have money to do this and that was the goal it was like if we can't do this um you know financially um then you know, we're going to, we're going to quit. And so far, I think things have taken a little longer. I mean, I'll tell you, COVID didn't help because our materials costs jumped up, you know, one and a half, two and a half times over the two years of COVID. And we, we were blown away by that. That was not something we could predict. So that hurt. Um, But, you know, we were able to do it. But I think if you had a smaller structure, it would work fine. Ah, the vermiculture issue. Sorry, I can come back to that now. What I was thinking of was how inexpensive it was. It's one 275-gallon tote that we use to haul water back and forth to uh, a well down the road where we get collect our water from. Um, out here, used ones cost anywhere between $50 and $100. That's your septic tank. You bury that in the ground. The principles are the same. The effluent, the waste flows out of your house into the tank. So you got the PDC pipe, maybe you know, schedule 40 or something. So that, that'll cost you a couple hundred dollars for that. Uh, it goes into your tank, another 50 or a hundred dollars for that. You get some more pipe that goes out into your drain field and you branch off more PVC on your, your drain field. That's it. So we're talking it, I don't know, less than a thousand dollars for you to put in a septic system. You can excavate essentially by hand. So it is not a financially onerous task to do this and waste is a problem everywhere out here in rural areas. It's a mess. Um, municipal facilities are failing. They don't know what to do. We're pushing the vermiculture thing because it's aerobic. 
They eat the waste. They digest the waste. You can't have too much waste for worms to digest and then produce this effluent, this water that you can use literally. And one of our goals here is to demonstrate this. You can use it to water your crops. And so our goal is eventually that through our testing, we're going to demonstrate how clean the water is and we will be using it on trees, fruit trees and what have you. I mean, it's still it's still waste effluent. And so you don't want to be spraying your crops with it probably, but who knows? Time will tell whether the water in fact is clean enough, but at least you can produce um, fruit producing trees, berry bushes, um, those kinds of things that will do very, very well. And I think that that's something people would really not want to do in a traditional anaerobic um, waste processor. That is what our current septic systems are. So Thank you. That was the point that I lost my train of thought on was the cost associated with that vermicultural system. So then you've got what power you're off grid. You can connect to the grid. You don't have an issue. You just wire up your house. You put in a few circuits in your small house and you're all set. Um, We do all of our cooking outside. We have outside kitchen kitchen. um, And I'll tell you, we've gotten used to it. We like it. One of the, the, the sides of the house that we're building will be an outside kitchen. Though we love to cook and we love to eat and we really look forward to having the opportunity for a kitchen again. So that's one of the things inside the house we're going to focus on because that's, you know, we, we, we want to do that. And, you know, we're growing food and processing food and we have the ability to sell things that we make at the farmer's market and, and share with the community and that sort of thing. So it's what we want to do. But I love the idea of the outside kitchen. I mean, we, that's five years now. That's what we've used. And, uh, so right outside your house, you put in a, another shed roof off the, off the side and you put a, a little stove out there. And if you've got a photovoltaic, that'd probably be the, the most expensive part of the house. If you had a heavy duty PD system, but if you've got a small house and you don't have tremendous needs, I mean, if you've got a welding shop, you're going to need power. But if you're just living out there on the land, small footprint, you don't need that kind of power. Your PV system yeah, that could cost five to ten thousand dollars if you had a big PV system. So that could be the lion's share of the cost. Um, water pumps and those sorts of things—they're not so expensive. I mean, you look at it, you go into your local Home Depot and what have you, um, get pecs for your plumbing. Um, I know the fittings are expensive. I mean, we could go into the nitty-gritty details about how all this stuff works and the costs and all that sort of stuff. But I think what we've discovered is. The house elements, the necessary elements are not so expensive that ordinary people couldn't do it. And in fact, ordinary people live in houses, right? I mean, you're going to buy a finished house or you're going to build a house or you're going to rent a house. But somewhere there's a monetary energy that goes into the house. And my contention is using these recycled materials, helping the planet in this way, small footprint, negative carbon footprint, you can build something for cheaper than a traditional house and it will be more efficient and it will help you. It'll carry you through the rest of your life and you will love it. So arguably a, a lot, a, it's a, a lot of us are going to have to learn to be living <laughs> this way, arguably and, well, and how exciting that it can be done beautifully, yeah. you know, and, and I'm just thinking, as I know, uh, other folks listening are, as you described the home and how alive it is, you know, uh, specifically, how is your nature-based spirituality informing each of these decisions you're making about the home and this project? 
Oh, right. So into phase three, I guess the big, the big picture is I, um, I look forward to moving more into food production, community involvement with producing food, sharing these ideas with people, teaching to the extent that that's relevant, showing folks what we're doing, really showing by example, you know, that sort of thing. But um, my spirituality, nature-based spirituality tells me we need to protect the earth. Our earth is in a dire situation. Gaia is not happy. My belief is Gaia is going to survive. What are we? I don't know. Uh, you know, but I think that um, we need to do everything we can because guys sustains us and supports us. And we need to do that as well. And that is how we must behave as pagans. It's how I have behaved through my whole life, whether it is looking at um, my circle paganism, whether it's looking at the various branches of my ancestry, my native ancestry. I, I don't care which native group you look to. Everyone is saying the same thing in essence that the earth needs us. We need to understand that and recognize it and relearn what we used to do, our old pathways with living in harmony, living with just enough, not amassing whatever we can. And there is so much of that happening right now. And I think that that is also a function of what's happening to the earth. There are many people who think, well, this is the last gasp. I need to do what I can to grab as much as I can. And that's, it's a really shocking thing, but I, I think that I understand some of that, but I think in my mind and my wife and I, um, that is the opposite direction that we're trying to go. We're trying to do everything we can to make this place sustainable for as long as possible. And so um, another thing that we had done last year was to apply for uh, for a grant for land restoration, for water retention, for native plant growth. We, we succeeded in getting the grant. It was through our soil water conservation district and the state of New Mexico. And um, it was sizable. It would have helped. But we realized that... Um, we can't build the house and do the grant and do all of this at the same time. And we really do have to finish the house. I mean, that, you know, it's become the thing for us. And so our focus now is, is completing what we've started here and then moving on. And, and what they told us too, was that no harm, no foul, you know, you're not going to be judged because he didn't take it this year. So we'll probably apply again next year. And I think that, um, you know, we're looking forward to doing that. It'll involve protecting our arroyos, putting in one rock dams, putting in zuni bowls to retain the water to see if we can't regenerate growth that, that traditionally may have been there, you know, in times of no drought and that sort of thing. Perhaps reestablish wells that appear at the lowest point of our property that no longer run. I think that there are ways that we can replenish the, the shallow aquifer and allow for animals to have uh, watering holes, for example. There is no water, standing water out, out where we are. And so animals will pass through, but there's, there's not a lot of that. Um, so that would be phase three. And the other part of phase three is um, having um, retreats, spiritual retreats. I am looking forward so much to immersing myself into my spiritual practices and ministerial work and what have you and bringing people out here to experience this for right to passage for um spiritual development and and uh, and enlivening and what have you and, and this place speaks to me and i think because of that i can share that what what that what that means to me and i think i can bring that sort of peace and love that comes out of this land with folks who come out and so I am so looking forward to doing that. The house building is great. I love it. I love working with my hands. I've become a jack of all trades. I, I, 
I'm an auto repair guy. I fix our gas cars. I fix my diesel truck. I do all of that kind of work. I'm a carpenter. I'm a bricklayer. I'm a uh, an electrician. I had to take and pass the state's electrical test in order to do that work. Um, uh, you know, all of those things necessary to put something like this together, Kimi and I, my wife and I have become. And it's it's more than a necessity. It's out of love. It's like the goal is to put this thing in practice and, and make it work and show people how it can be done, that this is possible. It's not impossible. You know, we're doing it and we're old and, and it's working. And so that's the message uh, really. And I think that um, Mm. we're just so excited about this. So that's phase three. And I don't know, was that, did I answer your question? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And would it, I'm wondering, would it be all right with you if, if I went back to gallery view and, and would it be the time to allow some of the other folks to maybe comment and ask further questions about it? I I didn't want to take out a chunk of, of, of more information. If you had more, you wanted to share. Please. No. Okay. So so folks, I'm going to do that. Um, And, you know, if you if you have a comment or a question about what you've been hearing so far, it's very inspiring, isn't it? Yeah, Colleen. Um, <clears throat> I, I've known Chip for many, many years, and I can't even begin to tell you how happy I am that I tuned in tonight. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I have a friend with a modified earth ship in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. I oh. have been researching rammed earth construction, and my sister and I were just talking about greenhouses in the snow this morning. Excellent. Um, it's you know <laughs> when choir. I said I grew up on a farm, it was a real old school. Our kitchen garden was a half acre, and uh, so that is you know Mike and my question. So you lived in Wisconsin. What uh-huh. is the feasibility of this being done in Wisconsin? The the one that our friends did, obviously he modified it dramatically. It's an underground burned earth ship, and yeah. and he built all the things into it because he's a he's actually a. A builder of private planes so he oh. knew how to do all the fancy business yeah. um yeah. but what about the kind that you're doing in wisconsin is that feasible in that climate because that's the climate i like <laughs> absolutely i i 100 there's no question about it the um i mean first the uh, greenhouse in the snow you can do that anywhere nebraska winters are brutal i mean that's where it was designed and implemented so absolutely there's that and that was the first thing we did so i'll say that first the um the tire bale construction, the mass and the efficiency doesn't change. It doesn't matter where you are. You too, and I would recommend this. We, we bermed the back of our house. We wanted it bermed all the way up to the eaves, but the engineer yeah. wouldn't and the state and is like, okay, we bermed it as much as we could, which was four feet up the back. And so the earth berming, I believe, is is so important. If you can do it, do it. Carve out your, your hemispheric um, subterranean element and build your tire, tire bales into it. And, uh, you'll have a, a home that will never need heat and will never need air conditioning. And I don't care where it is, if it's in the Arctic circle or it's Wisconsin or it's here, or it's in Panama. I mean, same thing. Tire bales, you know, it's not like I'm the, the tire bale, uh, guru or, or pusher or anything, but I look at them as this is one way people can do two things, create an affordable and efficient structure and make use of a horrible waste material that, that isn't going away. So, you know, you win all the way around there. Yeah. 
you can. Well, and it sounded so it sounded so much more approachable than the rammed earth. Like you were talking about where you're oh. trying to put that 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 clay into those tires. That is yes. really yeah, that's very labor intensive. So this yes. has taken so much of that out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you. That that intensity of work, um, we couldn't do it. We yeah. would have had to, Hernia. you know, running between yeah, 55 and 60, exactly. Ramder starts looking a little more challenging. <laughs> right. I, oh, that I, it's gorgeous. Ram to earth is so it exciting. Is. We saw so many videos and saw, uh, you know, examples of Ram to earth construction. That's an incredible undertaking. It is yeah. not easy. That's, we no. concluded we couldn't build a house like that. We just couldn't do it mm, uh, you mm. know, and, and our artistic outlets um are satisfied i think with this newfound interest in clay and so we can do yeah. anything in our house we can cover the wood we can build sculptures and stuff and it's it's amazing <laughs> it's really cool you know so Chip, you you're never going to develop dementia you you guys are going to stay so active you will never <laughs> develop dementia exactly. <laughs> you know, well, keep your brains active exactly. i mean seriously <laughs> it's the way to do it yeah if you um we have information on our site and we've got mm. resources on there and if you please reach out colleen it'd be great to talk to you about this um mm -hmm. it got our engineer in portland he was a little portland oregon fixated i i, I guess but i i understand <laughs> it that's where he was but he was willing to work with us he had never done it and he and his staff put together the materials we needed to get our permit in new mexico he had the credential for new mexico and so it worked it's beautiful um there are some things that i think perhaps may not be necessary and I think that um, for Wisconsin, climate's different. Um, but I think that uh, tire bales are incredibly resilient and, uh, you know, they're not going to fall apart or fall over or anything like that, you know. But right. um, we could we could definitely talk some more. I'd love to talk some more about that. So, yeah. So brown, browncawa.com for people who yeah. want to know more. You even have phase one, phase two, phase three discussion. They're sort of reiterating some of the things you talked about. Nicholas, um Judith, did you all have comments or questions? I'd, I'd like to make um, uh, some brief comments. Um, this is really exciting to see. Um, I've uh, been following the website already. Um, so I've seen photos and, you know, some of the steps in the process. Um, but as I, I said um, earlier, I think I said, I, maybe I thought, um, I've seen a lot. Um, and it's really nice to see the different pieces that I've seen converge in this particular project. Mm -hmm. um, and I always talk about math. And for me, math is always streaming through my head. Um, and, you know, can it be done here? Can it be done there? And I think about the time I've spent out in uh, Hot Springs with Shante. And I've seen some of the stuff there. Maybe not mm -hmm. all of the pieces, but I've seen it. Um, and, you know, follow things online in you know, Sweden and, um, you know, places north. One of the things I thought was kind of fascinating, and this is a math thing. You know, this is, you know, something you can do where you are, Chip, but up mm -hmm. in Wisconsin, you can't do it. And I kind of learned it by moving to Kentucky. And it's the thing about um, the uh, 
autumn equinox and the spring equinox and where the sun is. Mm, yeah. Well, in Wisconsin, the sun's in a different place. Yes. So that little mechanic that you got going with your windows up top um, mm-hmm. works real good there. Where I'm here in uh, Kentucky, um, the sun or the sun is you know up above, you know, almost straight up, not quite straight up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, you know, my gardens are a little bath in terms of when's the shade and when's not the shade. When is the sun coming this way and when the sun going that way? So it's just really fascinating to listen and you know think about my own place and um, uh, the places where other people are that I know that you know do all the big project or, you know, small pieces of this project. So this is very exciting for me. So Mm -hmm. there you go. Thanks. Mm -hmm. I'll, 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 um, just suggest on, on, on the heels of the last comment of how everything came together here. It came together here based on the design work that Kimi and I had done to put together the house. There are incredible tools available for, looking at the sun, different times of the year, different times of day, where are they going? How big are your windows? Where do you put them? And all that sort of thing. I can tell you that that idea of how your house functions for you, how your your living structure functions is replicable across the country, north or south. Your walls can shift like this and your windows can be here, and you can have an overhanging eave that is of a different shape and design, you can still pull that sunlight in and have those changes occur at the equinoxes, just like we do, with a slightly different shape. The Earth's shape uh, shape actually is not uh, vertical like ours is. It is is on a slope. It's about a 30-degree slope, the front front windows. And the greenhouse in the front is also, and ours is not. It's... we have a, a porch roof, but it's it's flat all the way across. Um, we don't we don't need that. When we look at the calculations and the heat loss and the heat gain and the solar activity and what have you, we were pretty pleased with pulling the uh, the porch roof out about ten feet, putting glass on the front, slope at thirty four degrees to put the uh, panels on so that it maximizes winter and summer um, sunlight sufficiently down slope on the window so that we're not missing anything, all of that. But you can do that anywhere. That engineering is, and you can easily design the house to have a sloped wall. That's not, but anyway, sorry. I just wanted to, for folks who are in Northern climes, you can still engineer this in a way that would um, provide, I think that that sort of solar effect to, to the greatest benefit for you. So, mm. Mm. Thank you well, for mentioning that because that's important, I think. Yeah. Well, I am not in a position to actually build anything right now living in the city. <laughs> However, I think it's so important to be hearing about this. I've been researching the, the tire building. I've been researching the solar aspect of it. And um, I'm just so fascinated and so excited about the fact that this is development. This is, this is, you know, this is really coming to the fore. So for us to be talking about this um, in a public way and to putting out this great information chip, thank you so much for sharing oh. um, everything mm-hmm. that, that you're going through. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. just amazing. And I cannot wait to come and visit you. So yeah. Please. Thank you. Right. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're here. We're, you're going to be ready to host PSG. Yeah, that's right now. <laughs> uh, we're talking about it. 
<laughs> Not a lot of infrastructure here. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Can you go without water? Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I I'm thinking I'm thinking of tying all this, like Judith was saying, to to conversation in the larger climate space, which really is is starting to um, bypass the language of sustainability and introduce the language of regeneration. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm seeing Gaia is going to force this issue if we don't get more proactive about it. We're doing what we can to learn to learn to reclaim these wonderful Earth wisdom skills. But civilizations come and go. Human civilizations crash and burn and become something else. And so the whole notion of a regenerative culture coming is one that offers me hope because we see new ways of learning to live on the earth, being allies with the earth, reclaiming a lot of ancient earth wisdom. And for me, this whole project that you're doing is one of the manifestations of that because this is regenerative um it's a regenerative settlement i guess is is how it strikes me i'm wondering chip if if as some closing words here if you've got words of hope for people who are worried about what may come and how choosing to live in a regenerative way like this is giving you a sense of hope oh absolutely do it uh, colleen your hands up did you uh i mean Maybe I'll hold oh, sorry, colleague. It's yeah. it's such a you know what Nicholas was talking about in working with Shante, you know, chop wood, haul water. <sighs> the the level of how you change your spiritual connection when you do it through activities that, that are specifically and and connected to the earth in that fashion, and you have to slow down to mix up the clay and smooth the clay and it has to happen when it's going to be 48 degrees for when you have to start paying attention to that it brings your spirituality so much into your your real life it becomes something not separated but integrated and it just yeah you you are Mm -hmm. so right the -hmm. transition from 40 years well not quite but city dwelling city working and coming down here yeah. where we are alone with all of this, with the love and the energy of place uh, has been extraordinary. And that, oh boy. And for me, that's the biggest, most helpful part of this. That mm. energy is there for you. Just feel it through your feet. I mean, go out and walk around. I mean, I go out and I look at the sky every night and i see the constellations moving across and i know every single one of them and i know what time of year it is and i know what time of night it is by looking at the stars i mean i couldn't do that in in madison i mean this is years of of being out here now you know five it's not not that long but um we drive away or i go on an errand or something and it's like a rubber band. I, I, I'm going out there and it's like, but I want to go back. I want to be back home. But that's, that's not to say that I don't love people and, and, you know, that community, because I know everyone is different. There are most folks probably wouldn't want to do this or, or would find it too challenging yeah. or, or, or something. I, you know, whatever. And that's okay. But I think what it's about is, plugging into the environment around you it's not just 
the built environment. It's just, it's not just other people. It's what are you doing, where you are, how are you using where you are in your life every day? And that is something that for me anyway, being plugged in out here, I couldn't help but experience it because it is a part of who I am. I got, I have dirt under my fingernails, you know, my, my shoes are full of, of rocks and uh, I've got <laughs> all over my clothes because of what I'm doing and what I'm touching and what I'm experiencing every day. It's a part of who I am now. Not that I didn't experience that sort of love of nature and, and guy and what have you beforehand, but this, this is different. This is an order of magnitude beyond that. And it's available to everyone. Um, I did want to leave with one interesting comment and it sort of ties this what i just said about changes in lifestyle and what we've done but it pertains to water water is so important the resource is special and significant it keeps us alive it keeps everything alive water um and so we're acutely aware of it down here where we're in drought and have been for decades and and it's it's a challenging thing and there's always competition for it but um we discovered uh, first of all, I'm doing our, our research, you know, what does water use mean? Who uses it and how much and that sort of thing. Interesting statistic. They say, and you can Google this, I guess, you know, the average American household, I don't know what that is, a party of four or, you know, people in the house use um, on the order of 300 gallons of water per day. And that to me, as I look in hindsight, I didn't even know that before we moved down here, really thought about it until we started doing our research is, you know, what does that even mean? You know, you're washing clothes, you're flushing the toilet, you're running water, your hands, you got a gallon going down the drain as you're washing your hands, you know, all that kind of stuff. It adds up um, showering. Geez, you know, I'm going to sit in there for 20 minutes with this heavy duty shower going over me. Well, we have discovered, first of all, we haul water. And so it is like chopping wood. It's like, this is my utility. I, this is precious. I created this. I brought it here. I need to care for it or I will not have it. And so what we have discovered is for our 27 chickens, for our greenhouse, for all of our water needs and our gardens, we use 500 gallons a month for our water. And mm. we're good with it. We don't feel like we need more or anything else. It just so many things change. When you start to plug into the environment, it tells mm -hmm. you, you don't need that. You know, we're going to take care of you here. You're going to get what you need. And that is enough. And in fact, it's more than enough. It's overflowing to go with that metaphor, you know, uh, the feeling of love and spirit and the connectedness and the alive aspects of, of where we are. And so hope yeah i think there's every reason to hope there's so many things you can do a small thing whatever it might be and i've said this many times you know plant a plant, plant a bean in a cup i you know whatever you you do do something that puts you in touch with an extra life force or something associated with nature you know don't cut your grass for for one week um do something that you think you know what this Used to be a different way, and I'm going to go with that for now. But there are so many things that you can do in the city, in your house, outside. Again, planting gardens, growing a little bit of food, um, maybe not buying so much junk. You know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> There's so much you can do, but there are so many reasons to be hopeful because I, the resources are there. Gaia is helping and has so much wisdom if we just listen and plug in. 
I know it's not easy. The language is tough, you know, but, but you, 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 you learn to speak a few words and before you know it, you're conversing and uh, it works. So a seven-year-old said a seven-year-old, I love what you're saying. And to just put a <laughs> button on that, a seven-year-old, you said language is tough said to me the other day. I was at an electric electrification event and she came up and she was just very gentle and I said, why, why do you care about helping the earth, honey? And she said, we must take care of the earth because she takes care of us. I take care of her. She takes care of me. I take care of her. She takes care of mama. I take care of her. She takes care of bunny. And I said, there you have it. And I said, that is, that's, that's a bumper sticker, except I don't want to put it on a car. But I mean, right? <laughs> right. Right. Yes. Thank you so much, Chip. Everybody, thank, thank you. you so much, Chip, thank for you. sharing this. You know, I know Honor. this it is ongoing. Great. We'll have to have yes. an, an update installment once yes, phase three fun. goes further along. But this is really yeah. fun to hear. Um, thank you so much, Nicholas, uh, Judith, Colleen, for being here um, with me to be able to listen to this as, as part of our circle tonight. Um, and folks who are listening or, or viewing, I mean, that pretty much wraps up this uh, particular conversation. Um, thank you so much for listening and watching. And always, if you value, you yeah, if you, you value so what you heard here today, folks, please share this information. Okay. Yeah. We've got um, new uh, Blue Marble podcasts are on www.blogtalkradio.com slash CSNP. You can search for Blue Marble with Rev Charbert. You'll find the archive of these podcasts, including this one, which will air the third week of November 2023 at the time of, of this recording. But it'll be there forever. Please go back and look at it. Share it. You also can find on the Circle Sanctuary YouTube channel these Green Faith Circle recordings of these wonderful uh, folks and their wonderful stories of making a positive difference. So until next time, um, stay true and blue. Thank you for all the good you do. And hey, I hope to see you in the green space. Thank you for joining us on the Circle Sanctuary Network podcast presented by Circle Sanctuary and produced for all who follow nature-centered paths. Join us throughout the week for various programming connecting with the community around the world. Please don't forget to watch for updates on the Circle Sanctuary website at www.circlesanctuary.org. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash CSN podcasts. We can also be found on your favorite podcast hosting sites such as iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and others. Until next time, many blessings. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.